Hear news as it happens over WOR 710 on your dial, your station for news in New York. Coming up, Gene Shepard. and a few guys listening tonight think they are. Listen to this guy. This is really a beer drinker. Did you see a little note uh, in the paper here the other day? A little tiny note at the bottom. It says, uh, Salzgitter, Germany. Rolf Thierkauf has installed a 300-yard pipeline from his home directly to a brewery, which bills him monthly for the amount of beer consumed. They got a meter on it. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Reset that, Herb. I just thought we'd like to salute Rolf there. It's a classic. You know, I'll tell you, beer drinkers are, are uh, a breed apart. I mean, I, I've i never been particularly a beer fan. But, no, I, I haven't really. And, and uh, it's, uh, it's like... Uh, it's like a lot of other things. Either you love beer or you just, you know, nothing to it. I'm not a beer man, really. And I, one of the most fantastic ex, uh, examples of creative beer drinking that I ever saw in my life, I'll never forget it. I was sitting out at Shea Stadium here about a year ago. You know, beer and... Uh, I have felt from time to time that if the beer business stopped, there would be no sports in America overnight. Well, certainly there wouldn't be any on television. I mean, almost everything that's on television that has to do with athletics is sponsored by beer. Now, <laughs> and, no, and, and, and if somebody came along and declared beer illegal, what would that do to the Mets? I mean, what would it do to Channel 9, for one thing? You know, it, uh, it would just... Uh, I, I, think, I think, in fact, I think our whole economy, most people think the economy is based on 
on, uh, you know, the automobile industry, for example. I don't buy that. I think it's based on beer. I mean, the whole economy is... Uh, how many taverns do you think there are in this city, for example? I mean, let's, let's, uh, parallel, let's uh, compare the number of taverns with, uh, let's say, the number of uh, decent restaurants in New York. Forget it. I mean, I want to tell you. And if you think there's a lot of them here in New York City, uh, the, the tavern mystique reaches its crescendo in places like Milwaukee. Now, that's a truth. I mean, really. I mean, the, the idea of the family tavern in places like Milwaukee and in South Chicago and places like Hegwish, Illinois, uh, just goes beyond anything you people know in this area. Now, what is a family tavern? Well, it's a place where they go every night. I mean, they, the whole family goes and squats down and drinks beer. It's as simple as that. And they all know each other. See, they, it's a family thing. And, uh, and uh, the, whole, the whole mystique is it's very similar to the mystique of the pub in uh, Scotland and England. But it has not really developed very big here in the East Coast. Uh, not nearly as as big as it is out in the Midwest. The fantastic scene. And by the way, each tavern in the Midwest, in general, and many of the cities anyway, each tavern has its own athletic teams. So you'll see uh, the Bluebird Tavern is playing uh, is playing uh, Al's Tavern tonight in the softball tournament. And uh, they, you know, every, everybody sits around wears his softball shirt on the back, and then they have their own bowling teams too. You know, with the shirt and the big bottle of Pabst Blue Ribbon on the back and a whole bit. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I've, seen, I've seen guys. I went to a wedding one time where, where the bride, well, it wasn't the bride so much, but it was the groom, the best man. They were all dressed up in their brand new best bowling shirts. And, uh, yeah, blue and white bowling shirts with a blue, uh, with a blue uh, pocket. And on the back, you know, it said the Pabst. And on the front, it said Al, his name, you know, Al Pastano. And uh, it's a, it's a whole technique, and I and I like the idea of a guy having a pipeline to his house. He just circumvents the middleman there completely. And uh, <laughs> well, listen, uh, what I was going to tell you about the guy I saw at Shea Stadium one time. Well, I, I I couldn't believe my eyes. It was an unbelievable performance. I'm sitting out in the way out in the boondocks out at Shea. You know, when you uh, one thing about the, the new style sports arena. There's only about 15 or 20 seats that are decent seats where you can actually see things. Uh, you, you, yeah, in fact, when you're out in Shea, it's Shea like take, take an example of Shea, there are millions of seats, it seems like, out at Shea Stadium that you are so far away from what's going on. Have you ever been out there, Herb? You're so far away, it's, it's like looking down from about the 84th floor of the Empire State Building and trying to watch a traffic jam <laughs> below you, you know, just unbelievably far away. Yeah, it's fantastic, and you're way up in the air, and you're looking straight down. So this, uh, this then, of course, since you're so far away that you can't get involved in the game, it causes other sports to take place. Uh, you know, a guy has to do something out there, so generally they wind up either eating themselves out of their skull, or they wind up drinking, sometimes both. And uh, the guy that was sitting in front of me this one day, I, I took, uh, he was sitting there with his kids. He was right directly in front of me. And we're way out in left field, so far away that the ball game was purely an abstract concept to us. We had, I mean, uh, and no wonder everybody sits out there in left field with an ear, you know, with, with a transistor radio. He wants to hear, you know, what the ball game is. One guy, in fact, I was out there one day, one guy sat there and he kept jumping up and cheering. I wonder what the hell is he cheering about? Because, you know, I had this, I had my big 
binoculars on. I could see nothing was happening down there. He kept jumping up and cheering, see. Well, he had the wrong ball game tuned in on his transistor radio. And uh, he, he, uh, <laughs> he was listening to a Yankee game, and actually he didn't realize that he was watching a Mets game. So every time Bobby Mercer got on first, he'd jump up and cheer, and I said, you know, finally, well, let's, <laughs> it's easy to happen, you know, in these games. And so I'm sitting out there one day, and uh, I saw a great feat of athletics. I, I thought it was athletic feat. Uh, it depends on how you define athletics, but I thought it was fantastic feat of human endurance. This man sitting ahead of me there, uh, the beer guy was walking up and down the aisle. See, so he's got this, uh, you know, this machine where he squirts beer out of the out of this uh, little thing that he carries on his back, and he's got all these paper cups. See, and uh, the, he's going like beer, 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 ice cold beer. And uh, the, guy, <laughs> the guy, by the way, I I uh, I'm delighted to report that among uh, some of the most dedicated listeners to the show is at least five or six ushers who work both at Yankee Stadium, not ushers really, but vendors who work at Yankee Stadium and at Shea. Uh, I uh, constantly run into them. Every time I go, go to a ball game, this guy will come up and he'll squirt beer on the top of my head, and I'll say, well, I'll you know, turn around and say, Excelsior, and he'll go running away, see, which is what I need. But uh, nevertheless, uh, this, this day that I watched this fantastic, I thought it was a great feat of human endurance, and I think one day it'll be an Olympic event uh, if, uh, you know, if the beer mystique continues on in our in our society, uh, the guy sitting ahead of me, see, and this kid is walking up and down with his with his beer can on his back, you know, and squirting it into the cups. He's hollering, bear, 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 ice cold bear. And this guy hollers, hey, oh, oh, go, kill, kid, hey, come here over, buddy. And the kid comes over and he says, oh, four, give me four. Well, I, I four. Uh, you know, I was kind of impressed right there. He ordered four beers, and I saw he's with his kid, and his kid was about six, so I didn't figure the kid was going to knock down more than five or six beers himself, you know. So with that, the old man takes four beers, and he puts them on the railing, which is directly ahead of him. He's right on the edge of the seats, and he's way up. We're about the tenth uh, tier, high up above uh, Queens out there. And uh, so high up that you could see the entire landing pattern over at LaGuardia. We were so high up, you know, I could see. I was up there. In fact, guys were flying past me to level up with me, you know, and they're 727. So uh, I, he's, he takes his four beers and he puts them on the landing ahead of him. And he grabs the one on the left and he takes a couple of big sucks. Incidentally, are you aware that in Hawaii they have an expression about beer? Yeah, and... Uh, and I ran afoul of it. I was out in Hawaii here a few months back, and the expression is "suck 'em up." When you're drinking beer, they call it "sucking up a beer," or they just call it "sucking 'em up." That's that's what their expression is: "sucking 'em up." And so, uh, yeah, they'll say, uh, "Oh, he's sucking 'em up tonight," and that means he's out drinking beer, sucking 'em up. They even have T-shirts out there that say "suck 'em up." <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, they really beer is a whole fat, and they have the most strange beer out in Hawaii. I don't think I've ever talked about it, but they got a beer called Primo Beer, and it's a Hawaiian beer, and it tastes a curious uh, taste. I mean, it. Uh, I've never tasted a beer quite like that. It tastes a little bit like vaguely rancid pineapple juice. It's curious. Yeah, it's strange, and oh, they love it. Oh, they really suck it up, you know. And, uh, it, and so how we ran afoul of it, I was with my camera crew. We were shooting this scene out there. And, and so somebody went into it. It was very warm that day. 
And so somebody went into this grocery store and brought out a six-pack of Primo, which is the Hawaiian beer. And so we handed it out to the cameraman, and we're sitting there drinking the beer. When all of a sudden this squad car pulls up, and I will tell you, the Hawaiian fuzz or something else, they're tough, man. And they all look vaguely uh, Polynesian. Got the very uh, stormtrooper-type uniform. So he pulls up this squad car instantly, out of the blue. I don't know where he came from. Just zap, he's there. And he says, oh, you suck him up. Suck him up, huh? All right, no sucking him up out here on the street here. You move out. Either you suck him up in the tavern or you don't suck him up here. So you don't get away with that here. Well, we said, what, what, what? He said, you don't suck him up on the street. Who do you think you are here, huh? Meaning you don't drink beer when you're on the street there in uh, in Hawaii. If you if you drink beer on the street there, man, that's like a capital offense. So you have to go into the tavern over there and drink it, or you, you go indoors somewhere. You cannot be seen in the street sucking them up. So uh, we, you know, we, we said, okay, okay, all right, all right. We don't know anything about that. You suck them up, you get out of here. So uh, we did. I mean, we, you know, we proceeded to suck them up and got out real quick because we, you know, you, you know when you're not wanted. And so uh, at least I do. So uh, nevertheless, I'm sitting behind this guy out at Shea, not realizing I'm about to see a great uh, feat of human endurance. And within five minutes, he knocks down four beers. You know, the great big ones. You know, they come with a big, uh, big uh, cardboard can there, and he knocks them down one after the other. And he takes the cups. And he puts them one inside the other. He keeps them very neatly. He keeps his empties. So after four beers, now, I don't, let's see, how much is in a, a can of beer? Twelve ounces? Twelve ounces, is that what it is? All right, he drank four beers. Now, how much is that? I've figured it out. Now, that's 48 ounces of beer, right? 24, 40, yeah, that's 48 ounces of beer. That's a lot of beer right there, see? So I'm watching him. The game is going on. Nothing happens. And uh, down the aisle again comes this kid. Yeah, beer, beer, ice cold beer, beer, beer. And he turns around and says, oh, okay, give me a couple of beer. And the kid gives him a couple more beer. And he puts him on the rating in front of him there. And he starts on the one on the left. He always worked from left to right. Every, all good beer drinkers have techniques, you know, that they are unbroken. So he drinks from left to right. And uh, I, I, I'm watching this, see, and I said, now there's number five. He's just knocked down the fifth one. And he takes the empty, and he puts it in the little stack of empties he's got. Now he's got five empty cardboard cups. In the meantime, the ball game is going on way off in the distance someplace. I guess it was a ball game they were playing. I don't know. So uh, he drinks his five beers. By this time, I'm getting involved in it. See, I'm watching. But the kid is doing nothing except jumping up once in a while and yelling. And he is not helping his old man drink the beer. The old man was doing it on his own. So uh, he starts on the sixth one. And this time he's he's playing with it a little bit, you know. He's not he's not gulping them down like he did the first five, which was like a pig, you know. He just gulped the other ones out. Now he sips it a little bit, and I watch, and sure enough, he finishes six beers. Now six times twelve is how many ounces? I want you to figure that out for me. That's uh, forty-eight ounces for four. How many? Seventy-two ounces, right? Well, now how many ounces is there in a gallon, Herb? We're giving you a little test here. All right. Uh, this guy has got now in his gut 72 ounces of B-E-E-E-R. Beeruni, right? Biru, as they say in the Japano. So he knocks down six beers. This is W-O-R New York. And he's got six of them under the hatch there. And now it's about the fifth inning. He's doing pretty good. And I figure now he's had enough beer for a while, see? 
And he's a real skinny, scrawny-looking guy. That's what got me. A very skinny, he had this scrawny red neck. And he walks, you know, he sits around, and he keeps looking around. See, and I figure he's going to buy popcorn now. No, no, he keeps looking around. He says, hey, beer, kid, hey, beer, beer. With that, the kid comes down with a beer squirter, and he's, give me a couple beer here. And he drinks two more beers. Now it is going into the eighth inning. He has drunk eight beers. The game is in the ninth inning. He drinks two more beers. The game goes into extra innings. It is a tie game. So, of course, he wants to make sure that he's tied it over. He finally wound up with a total of 11 12-ounce beers. I want you to figure it out, Herb. How many, how many ounces of beer did he have? In, in the in the old pot there. All right, now let's see. Ten, uh, 10 would be 120, correct? So he has in his gut 132 ounces of beer. 132 ounces. Now, the point that I'm about to make, at no point during the entire game did he leave his seat. Now, I consider that an extraordinary performance, a brilliant performance. And I, you know, after a while, it got to the point where every time he'd knock down a beer, I'd applaud. I just had to do it. I mean, it was just, he, he was doing something far more interesting than anything that Ed Cranepool was conceivably able to do down there on that field. And so the ball game is over. The Mets dropped it. The ball game is over, and we got up to leave. And here he is ahead of me, see? He's walking along. And he's got the 11 empties. He's got all these empties all piled up in a neat little stack there, see? He stacked one of them up on top of the other all the way through the game. Didn't crumple them up. They looked beautiful. Nicely, you know, nicely stacked. He got up. He looked at the stack of beers. And uh, we walked up. And I walked behind him, see? We walked down the aisle. Now, I'm going to tell you something you're going to find absolutely unbelievable. But this is exactly what happened. We walked past a refreshment stand. He stopped and he said something to his kid, and the kid says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." So the kid winds up with a with a uh, with a popsicle or something, and the old man is standing next to the refreshment stand with a beer in his claw. Well, I watched this. I wanted to see what would happen. Now you're th you're thinking I'm inventing, and I'm telling you the truth. I wanted to see what this guy would do. So he knocks down the beer, just. Like that, you know, very easy, just slow and easy. This guy was a pro. We then walked down. I followed him down. We went down the ramp. We made about three big, you know, how you go down that ramp and you're going up and down those those uh, automatic stairs and stuff. And I'm right behind this guy. I'm watching him every minute. He is not out of my sight. We now leave the stadium out of the main gate there, big gate number C, whatever it is, and up up, up on top, you know, there's all the subways and all that stuff. The son of a gun walks through the gate. The last thing I saw, he and his kid were getting into a Nash Ambassador station wagon. He did not stop once. I consider this a remarkable achievement. Twelve beers, to my knowledge. Twelve beers, I counted them. Now, how many ounces is that? 132 for 1144. 144 ounces of beer, and the guy still was skinny. 
I don't know where he put it. I mean, he didn't, he didn't bulge or anything. <laughs> he was just walking out, and he didn't slosh. That's what I thought. I thought, you know, if I got next to him, close to him, I could hear it sloshing around in him like that, you know. Nah. A real pro. Hit the ding-dong. Palisades yeah. has arrived. Palisades has <laughs> thing to come out with Palisades. Come huh? on <laughs> over. Yeah, yeah. Shows and dancing are free, shows of well, parking. This, this is the last year. Come on over. Yeah, Palisades is open for the season, of course. And you get over there, they got the free parking and the whole business. So uh, get out. hey, this is the last year over there. So if you're going to make the last big swing on those. Uh, Fantastic ride. You better get over there, friend. Uh, this is it for Palisades. Hello there. I'm Art Linkletter. You know, kids are saying the darndest things about drugs. I'm a girl who likes to play in the future. I've always had my own dreams about the future, and I want very much for them to come true. I don't want drugs to spoil it. First of all, I want to be happy and have a family, and if I take drugs, it would probably ruin it for me. I think people who take drugs are phonies who don't want to or can't face reality and the problems that face them. I also think that they are selfish people who don't care about their parents and their friends who care about them, but just think about themselves. I think that drugs and a worthwhile and happy future don't go together, and I want to have both. That youngster knows it. The New York State Narcotic Addiction Control Commission knows it. And now, you know it. This is our link letter. Remember, you can't make it with drugs. Here's Pete Retzlaff for today's United States Army. As general manager of the Philadelphia Eagles football club, it's my job to consider a lot of options, especially in recruiting the best potential pro prospects. Well, today's United States Army has a great new option high school graduates should consider. It's called the European Duty Enlistment Option. If you enlist now for three years in the armor, artillery, or infantry, and successfully complete a four-month training program in the United States, you're off to Europe for a full 16 months tour of duty. And your 30 days paid vacation a year gives you the opportunity to travel all over Western Europe. So if you'd like the opportunity to see Europe, as few tourists do, see your Army representative for further information about a complete tour of duty under the new European enlistment option. Today's Army wants to join you. For the location of your nearest Army representative, call 800-243-6000, toll free. But uh, that's, uh, you know, live and let live. But uh, I, I uh, must say, I, I think the only time that I've ever... I've ever uh, seen, of course, outside of the incident at Shea, uh, you mentioned something there, Herb, about this business of the uh, of the beer festival and all that they have out in Pennsylvania and stuff. Well, I've seen it in the real thing. I I was at the Oktoberfest one time in Germany, and uh, of course, this is the big leagues. I mean, if you, if uh, if you go there to drink beer, you're you're with the real big timers, and they serve beer, of course, in these enormous Steins, these tremendous stone-looking steins. They're uh, they're liters, a full liter of beer. Tremendous thing comes like that, you know, great big thing. And uh, I I I saw I saw one thing that I had never seen 
ever in my life, uh, in the Oktoberfest. You know, the people have a keg of beer delivered to their table. A keg. And it's a, it's comes, it's a regular keg of beer, and they, they put it right in the middle of the table, and it's on like a lazy Susan. And it's a whole, I mean, it's a big thing. It's a big barrel of beer. They just slap that keg right on the middle of the table, and they charge them whatever a keg of beer is. And it's got a spigot on it. And these people sit around there, and they just drink the beer, and they just keep spinning it around, you know, from one to the other. And I, you know, that that uh, that, that totally eludes me, you know, that kind of uh, that kind of beer drinking. But uh, this, uh, you know, this is the way they do it. You know, speaking of uh, of uh, beer drinking, and and I, I don't know, you know, I, I'm on an animal kick lately. I've uh, I've uh, yeah, gotten to this thing. I remember uh, one time seeing a dog. Uh, there was a dog when I was a newsboy. I used to come around. I'd deliver deliver uh, papers to this tavern, and they had a dog that was living in the tavern there, and he was a big German Shepherd. And I don't think in the two years that I delivered papers to that tavern that I ever once saw that dog stone cold sober. The dog was a drunk. I mean, he was an absolute alcoholic. Now a lot of people. You know, I, I I think this is rotten, but the dog didn't mind it. Apparently, he loved it. Uh, I, you know, he just laid there on the floor, and then he had a kind of a uh, kind of a cockeyed look. Yeah, his tongue was hanging out all the time, and and uh, he was kind of a beefy looking dog. And of course, it was tr- a tradition in this tavern. It was a Polish tavern. It was tradition in the tavern that anybody who comes in there and uh, sitting around before he would leave, of course, he'd have to buy a beer for Hans, who was a dog. And uh, so eight or nine of these big steel workers had come in, you know, and about five minutes later, Hans was walking around looking mad, see, until they started, until they dish it out. He was ready. See, he'd walk, he'd go from guy to guy, Bleh. he'd growl, Bleh. and uh, they, oh, Hans, yeah, yeah, give me the Hans, give me the beer for Hans there. And uh, they they draw beer, and they would pour it in Hans's bowl, which had a picture of the kennel ration label on the side of it. <laughs> he never... <laughs> It's kind of a strange scene. And, you know, you've seen these big plastic bowls. And they would just pour three or four beers in this bowl there, and they'd sit it down, and Hans would suck it up, you know, about three big laps, and, and down would go to beer. Well, then you get this ecstatic look on his map. And he'd slowly sink down there, and he'd sit there with a with a sappy look on his face until the next crowd came in. Then he'd get up and start growling again. Well, <laughs> well of course, you know, man's relationship to animals has always been... Uh, Touch and go. Uh, did you see? Did you see that uh, piece on television here recently? Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy that does uh, used to. They used to call it Zoo Parade. They call it something else now. The Animal Kingdom. Uh, Marlon Perkins. Yeah, Marlon Perkins. And uh, they did a thing on sea cows. You see that thing on sea cows? Well. I, I, I've had a curious touch-and-go relationship with sea cows uh, at odd moments in my life. Now, I, I would venture to say that most of you have never seen a sea cow. Well, one day, I was sitting in a little... It's a very interesting thing happened to the sea cow. I was sitting in a, in a, in a little canal uh, down near the Everglades, one of these canals that you see down in Florida. Just a very narrow canal. The thing was only about, oh, I'd say... 25 feet wide. It's very narrow. And it was a canal. 
And uh, I was sitting in, in, in a boat with this guy, and we were fishing. It's a nice warm day, and uh, a couple of uh, weeds were floating around. And not much was happening. We didn't have much action there. We were just sitting there talking away. And uh, I had caught, yes, one thing I had caught, I, a curious thing. Have you ever seen a stone crab? Well, stone crabs are highly prized down in Florida. They're, they're a delicacy, which are very rare. You don't see many stone crabs. Any of you have ever had stone crabs, you know that these are just fantastic. And they're served cold when you get a stone crab. And they, the reason they call them stone crabs is they're, they're, they're like they're made out of stone. I mean, you never saw such a claw. You eat only the claws. And they're big. They're like a big lobster claw. But, man, I'm telling you, to, to break them open is like busting a safe. So I caught a stone crab, and I let him go. Very angry-looking crab. Oh, man, they bite like Billy be damned, you know, tough-looking crabs. So I let the crab go, and I'm sitting there in the boat, and I'm talking to this guy. But all of a sudden, right next to the boat, right next to the boat, now the water was kind of a soupy water. It wasn't particularly clear. It, uh, there were a lot of algae and stuff in the water. All of a sudden, there's a great boiling roaring uh, thing happens next to the boat, just <laughs> tremendous boiling action. And I saw a tail come out of the water that looked like it was at least three feet across. Fantastic. I mean, in this little tiny thing here, you know, a little bitty canal, it's a tremendous tail. And I want to say the tail was about three feet across. You know, it just, <laughs> the tail goes up like that. I said, what the what was that? And he says, what? He didn't even see it. He was looking the other way. He says, what? What do you mean? I said, something just come up. It's fantastic. It's going to get us. It's fantastic. So let's get out of here. There's a tremendous tail. So I figured, you know, we're trapped in this little canal or whatever it is. You know, the first thing that hit me must be some kind of a fantastic shark or something. This big tail. He says, what? What? Something just, something just came to the water there. Let's get out of here. What's the matter with you, boy? He's a real southerner. He says, what's the matter with you? I saw something just come to the wall. It's surfs there. Shh, maybe it'll do it again. So you've been drinking that bourbon? I said, no, I haven't been drinking that bourbon. I'm sitting there and I see this big tail coming out of the water there. He said, what are you talking about? He said, where was it? I said, right over there. It's about three feet away from the boat. By that time, I'm talking real soft. I, you know, I didn't want that thing to come out and grab me. You know, I was there. Well, I sit there for a second, watching the spot. You know, you can get mesmerized watching water. You can just get hypnotized. And I'm looking at the water, sort of dancing up and down in the sun there, right where he boiled up. When suddenly I hear behind me, I hear a snort, and I turn, and it was a face looking at me out of the water, and I want to tell you, that face was about the size, I'd say about the size of a, of a very big watermelon. Tremendous face. It was about three feet across with two little beady eyes. So, you know, he just goes, and he's got, he's got a, like, a, like a big whiskers. I can't believe it. I said, there it is. Quick, quick. Well, he looks at the friend of mine looks at it. See, I figured he'd know what it is. He almost died. He said, my God, Almighty, what is that? I said, I don't know what it is. And under the water it goes. The big tail comes out like that. Well, I said, we better get out of here quick. 
It's like, we start the motors. He's got a motor. <laughs> that thing was right by the boat. And, and he starts the motor, and we go cooling out of there. And I didn't know what the, I mean, I didn't know what the hell this thing was. It was a fantastic animal looking at me. And, and I, I figured this guy who lived down there, he'd know, see, and, and here he is, his, his face is, it's like, you know, it's ashen. His face is ashen. His eyeballs are popping out. He's staring there like he's flipping his wig. So we go back to the docks about, about 100 yards away. We get back to the dock, and we climb up out of the boat. You know, we've had enough fishing for today. There was no action anyway, and then that thing is coming at us. So we climb up out of the boat. And uh, there's a guy standing there, a casual-looking guy who's in charge of the dock there. And so my friend says, my God, he says, there's something down there in that canal. There's something after us. He says, what's the matter with you? He says, well, that's something there. He says, oh, come on, that's Lucy. I said, Lucy, what do you mean, Lucy? Says, yeah, that's Lucy. She's never going to hurt nobody. That's Lucy lives down there in the canal, that Lucy the sea cow. That's Lucy the sea cow. That's a sea cow. That's the second time in my life I had... I had a tangle with a sea cow. But that's the first time I actually saw one in its own native habitat. And uh, they're curious animals. Did you see the piece that came out of, out of uh, Florida State the other day? Listen to this one. Uh, Florida Institute of Technology. It's a big uh, sports school down there, you know. Florida Institute of Technology's freshman crew team. Early Tuesday morning... The big monster, which actually isn't a monster at all, but a 2,000-pound, for those of you who don't know how big a sea cow is, they weigh roughly a ton. A 2,000-pound docile sea cow became scared, made a mad dash for the sea, and in the process smashed into the Florida Tech Crew's $2,700 racing shell, sending its eight oarsmen plunging into the water, it ripped five holes in the boat's underside and tore away the gunwale of the six-man seat. It would lack an explosion, said varsity coach Bill Jurgens. Why, that water flew six feet in the air. The crew had just completed a 500-meter sprint, and the boat was just gliding through the water. You know, when they were sprinting like mad, you've seen a crow, and they were just sitting in a boat. It was just sort of gliding away. When apparently the sea cow, also known as a manatee, became scared. It rose up in the four-foot-deep water into the middle of the shell's stern section and just turned it sideways and just knocked the front of the boat right off, tore the bottom out, and the near-drowned, teeth-chattering oarsman managed to remain with the slender craft before it could take on enough water to sink. And they rowed frantically back to the dock a quarter of a mile away, and then it sank at the dock. We scared them before, said Jurgens, the coach, about the sea cows. Enough to get six inches of water in the boat from their splash, but this is the first time one actually came after us and made contact. Actually, he said, I, we'd seen this one out in the area on our way out. We were aware of it it's being around, but we never gave it enough thought. Well, that takes care of the boat, don't it? That was the end of their 2700 dollar boat. Now, you know, the sea cow, I'll tell you, I, 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 had a, I had a very curious experience with a sea cow. When I was a kid, we lived in a, you know, lived in northern Indiana. It's, don't, don't for one minute think that this, that the, the town I lived in was a small little Indiana town. It was a big town, about like Newark, actually, and a big industrial town. And about a block away from our house, there was an old 
deserted, boarded-up mansion. It looked a lot like the the uh, well, it looked like the the Charles Adams house. You know, you've seen pictures of the old Charles Adams house. Well, that's the way it looked. See, and it was set back on this vacant lot with all kinds of trees around it, and it was boarded up for oh, as long as I can remember. And uh, and uh, we used to go walking past it. You know how kids have these rumors around that the the house is haunted. And, and that kind of jazz, but it was really boarded up. They had big signs, you know, stay out, keep off, uh, this means you, that kind of stuff. So it had a big garage in the back of it, a tremendous six or seven car garage, which was also boarded up. It had about three little windows in the back, which were gray and dusty and, and uh, uh, completely almost impenetrable, right on the alley. So every couple of days we'd walk to school or come home from school and we'd walk past this garage this ancient house. Well, one day, on the way home from school, there's a tremendous amount of activity going on. There's trucks in the backyard of this house. I mean, big semi-tractor trailer type trucks, you know, big moving trucks. And there's crates all over the place. A couple of cars back there and some people walking around. And they have taken down the signs that say, keep out, this means you. They have taken down the boarded up things. And somebody is moving into this house. But it was more than just a family. It was like some big organization because they had crates and boxes and, and the, all kinds of file cabinets, a tremendous operation. So we're standing there watching this thing, see? And uh, there was a one big truck that was parked right next to the garage. A strange-looking truck that had high sides. And it was dripping. The truck was dripping. Out of the bottom of the truck was water coming out. Tremendous truck. We stood and looked at this, and a couple of guys said, Come on, get along here, kids. You know, don't mess around with this. Get out of the way there. And we're watching this thing going on. And that day, we stood around for about an hour and just watched them move in. But they didn't do anything with the dripping truck. But there was some kind of big construction going on in the garage. They had a bulldozer that was in the garage. They were working away with a, with a bulldozer. There were guys in there with all kinds of tools and stuff. We could see them in there, see? That truck is parked there next to us. Well, the next day, after, of course, it got dark, we had to leave. Nothing really happened. The next day, we're coming back from school, and we couldn't believe what we saw. We're peering into the garage now, and all the men have disappeared, and all the, there's all kinds of empty crates and stuff around there. In the garage, they had made what looked like a swimming pool on the floor of the garage. And it was filled with water. We could see it through the window, kind of gloomy, gray-looking interior of a garage. You could just barely make it out. But here's a pool that must have been 15 or 20 feet long, must have been 10 feet across, and it was filled with water. And in the water were these two eyes just looking out at us in the garage. It flicks us. What is that? And the three of us, me and Schwartz and Flick, are standing there up on our tiptoes, looking in the garage window, trying to figure out what this thing is. Well, Schwartz 
knocks on a window, just like that, you know. And this thing looks around. These two little eyes, little tiny beady eyes. And the water boils. It looks around. Schwartz knocks again. He says, hey, it's listening. And then it would... It disappeared under the water. What the heck is that? Well, we stood there for about a half an hour watching this scene. This curious animal. Curious thing. Look, look, very, very... No, it didn't only look strange. It didn't look exactly fierce. It was a curious kind of uh, almost human look about it. They don't look like a real animal. Well, we couldn't figure out what it was. And we went back home, and I never said anything at home about this, because, you know, if you hang around the back of that house, it was strict orders not to mess around that house. Then I knew that uh, we shouldn't be messing around that house, so I didn't say anything, see. The next day, we could hardly wait to get back at that house again on the way home from school. And there it is. And this time, it's sitting, almost sitting up. You can see almost like the shoulders. a fantastic animal. And Flick or Schwartz, one of the two of them, had found out what the thing is. It's a sea cow. Can you imagine living in the neighborhood with a sea cow? What a fantastic thing that was to kids. And there's a sea cow living in our neighborhood. Well, we couldn't figure out what the heck, you know, why is it a sea cow? And then the rumor began to drift around the neighborhood what this was. This was the central headquarters for a big magician who traveled around the country and had a big magic show of some kind, like a, like a big uh, circus or something. And they had bought this house, and this was their central headquarters. And it was, you know, it was a wild thing to have in your neighborhood. And sure enough, they had these strange-looking trucks out there with their name printed all over it, gold and yellow and blue and all kinds of wild paintings on the side of it. And one of the trucks had on the side, it says, See a real live captured sea monster. This was a showbiz sea cow. The sea cow was apparently, uh, you know, uh, he was he was in showbiz, and it was an actual sea monster living in our neighborhood. Well, for ev ev for weeks, every week after that. Oh, days we would come by and we would look in there, and it, it gradually got. The, the, the pool gradually got filled up with glop, and I can remember the sea cow looking out at us. And they, apparently the sea cow got so it was kind of looking forward to us. Every day, the sea cow would rise up and peer out, and we'd knock on a window, and he'd rise up and peer out, see? And somebody had knocked one of the other windows out, and we got so that we would throw apples in from our lunch. We'd throw the apple right into the water, see? And the sea cow would rise up and look at us. And we'd holler in at it, say, hey, how are you? Hey, hey, sea monster. You know, hey. And the sea monster would just sort of roll and look back. It had a curious, sad look in its eye. I mean, I've never forgotten that look in that, that strange animal's eye. But look at us every day. Well, this must have gone on for five, six months. All through the winter, the sea cow lived in this, this uh, fecund pool, which was now 
filled with bobbing beer cans. You could see apple cores floating in it and orange peels and stuff. And then one day, we were coming home from school in the spring. There's a big truck out there. And there's a lot of guys walking around and they got ropes and pulleys and stuff. And we look in the garage, no sea cow. And Flick knocked on the door. You know, the garage, nothing. Doesn't come to the surface. And then we found out the sea cow had died overnight. And uh, just passed out, just left us behind. And it was a strange feeling somehow. That dead sea cow in the neighborhood, the one that nobody ever talked to or went to sea. And he was no longer in showbiz now. He was where all the great sea cows go when sea cows finally shuffle off this mortal coil. And ever since that day, I've had a curious soft spot in my head for sea cows. I see Marlon Perkins swimming around there on a TV show feeding the sea cow. I hear about the sea cow knocking the bottom out of a boat. And the day that I saw the sea cow in the canal down in Florida, the sea cow, the manatee, one of nature's sadder people. WOR New York, next, Let's and the news. The news in detail of the hour from the WOR newsroom. A panel of members of the American Society of Newspaper Editors tonight put a wide range of questions to President Nixon. The president answered criticism of his intervention into the Lieutenant William Kelly case, saying that he had acted within the codes of military justice, and Mr. Nixon said that a definite date for the complete withdrawal of American forces from South Vietnam cannot be related to domestic politics. When asked if current blasts against the FBI for alleged spying on private citizens not committing crimes, the president said he stayed...